It's Tuesday, November 7th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Robert Cremo Jr. pled guilty in connection to the Highland Park, Illinois mass shooting on July 4th. Now, if you're saying, wait a minute, that's a shooting where seven people were killed and 48 were wounded. How do you only get a guilty plea of 60 days in jail? Well, the question is the Robert Cremo that we're talking about. Robert Cremo Jr., is the father of Robert Cremo III, who executed all those people. Robert Cremo Jr. is charged with signing a form in 2019 that allowed his mentally incompetent son to buy a semi-automatic rifle. And he should not have done that. The son was mentally ill, and circumstance would demonstrate he should have been kept far away from a rifle. But the crime did take place last year, and the old form wasn't even necessary in allowing Cremo III to buy the rifle. A fully adult and fully mentally incompetent Cremo III was clear to buy the rifle all by himself. So I question why Cremo Jr. was even charged. Well, I know the answer is because the community was outraged and they wanted someone to pay for it. Should it have been the father? He clearly did something wrong. But think about the state itself. The state says 60 days is a sufficient enough time for this man to serve in prison. Of course, had he contested that and gone up against the passions of the community, he was facing two years in jail. And we got to this when we talked about plea bargaining and how essential it is to the system. I find it hard to believe that any rational actor can say, well, the correct sentence for a misdeed is 60 days, unless you contest the misdeed and then it's really two years. It seems vast. I know it's only a difference of one year and 10 months, but it is in terms of days 12 times as much for simply trying to prove one's innocence. And I don't think Cremo is innocent in terms of acting ethically, but I think he may have been innocent in terms of the law, though I understand why he'd take the 60-day plea instead of the two-year possibility, exactly why they offer the plea and charge you with such a high crime. The real shame of it all is obviously that anyone can buy such an assault weapon. Now, perhaps Cremo the third could have conducted his assault with a different kind of weapon. In that case, I will predict, though we can never know, that the death toll would have been lower. In Illinois, the Supreme Court threw out a law passed afterwards about owning a semi-automatic rifle. So all we can do, this is a situation where we as a society, actual justice is denied. So we just reach for the justice that we have, which is to punish a man who is still accountable under the letter of the law for the actions of his son, who to whom we should have been accountable by having decent enough laws not to allow, if not the carnage, then the specific weapon used to effectuate the carnage. On the show today, it is, I am sad to say, a day on the gist very much steeped in carnage because I will talk about the misreported figure of beheaded babies in Israel and what that fact or lack of a fact has come to mean to many people. But first, the death of the American political center has been wildly exaggerated 
And my next guess would beg to differ. Literally, they beg the Democratic Party, their party, to conceive of the premise, where do Americans stand, quite differently than most on the left and in their party conceive of it. John Judas and Rui Teixeira, the minds behind the liberal Patriot newsletter and authors of Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The Soul of the Party in the Age of Extremes, up next. John Judas and Rui Teixeira are the liberal patriots. And guess what? So am I. That is the name of their Substack. It's one of the three or four that I never miss. They're out with a new book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? These two gentlemen have the correct prescription if you're invested in, say, Democrats not losing elections to Republicans who have bad ideas for America for the next generation. Listen to them. (laughs) Tend to this conversation. Hearken to the words of Judas and Teixeira. Gentlemen, welcome to The Gist. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, nice to be there. What do you guys call the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party? I know what the progressive wing is. Uh, Is it the New New Deal Coalition? What's your phrase for it? Well, I think it's something we'd like to exist, but uh, only exists um, in embryo right now, which is uh, a, a wing that is economically liberal and socially moderate and understands that there's a kind of um, large middle ground in America that uh, neither party is reaching. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I don't think there is um, a name for it yet. I mean, I think that sometimes people like us, people who agree with the kinds of things we said are described as moderates or centrists, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. that really kind of misses the point. Yeah. Um, It doesn't really capture what we're about. So we know that, though we know that there are plenty of names for the part of the Democratic Party, some of whom don't even want to be part of the Democratic Party. AOC says, you know, I'm only here because we have Mm -hmm. a two-party system. We know there are various words for them, social activists or progressives. What percentage of they are in the party? What percentage of voters really think if there were a multi-party system would be part of uh, that faction? Well, it depends on what uh, data you look at. I mean, a, a com- sort of something that's been uh, widely disseminated out there that's probably pretty decent is puted a typology of the electorate. And they, uh, they have the progressive left coming in at around 6% mm-hmm. of voters. Uh, More in Common, which is a polling and uh, outfit uh, that does you know, huge studies of, of, the, of the electorate, they had progressive activists at about 8%. Now, obviously, they're going to be a larger share of the Democratic Party. And not only are they a larger share of actual Democratic voters, but they're much larger share of the people who essentially run the party. Right. And primary voters. Yeah. So, yeah, no, they punch way above their weight. And, uh, you know, in the media landscape, nonprofits, academia, uh, foundations, what have you, uh, essentially, they have a gemini. Mm-hmm. So even though they're a relatively small sector of the population, they're hugely influential and they determine a good chunk of what people think about the Democratic Party. Right. Well, they deserve to because if they show up for primaries, you know, all power to them. And if they are mobilized and can be mobilized, then that's how our system works. But to the extent where the rest of the party and let's get that 
let's get into that in a second, or would be parts of the party who aren't like white working class. Um, the fact that they are convinced or they you use the word hegemony, they're just overwhelmed by progressive. That is a little bit of a problem. It's a distortion of what the party could be. So what are the other mm-hmm. parts of the democratic coalition as exists and really what could exist? Maybe people who identify themselves as independent, but you see as, oh, these are natural Democrats if the messaging was just right. Who are that? Well, I think, Rui, you should describe the uh, polling we did in uh, Wisconsin and uh, and in Massachusetts. I think that gets at it. I think. Yeah. If you look at a lot of these issues that, uh, that have come to define the sort of cultural, political landscape, I mean, it's surprising how moderate most people are and how they, they kind of dissent from uh, what appears to be the orthodoxy in many sectors of the Democratic Party. Um, like... Uh, you know, maybe I should, you know, pull them up somewhere. But do uh, you have those in front of you, John? Um, I have them sitting right in front of me. You want me to do it? Uh, for instance, America is not perfect, but it's good to be patriotic and proud of the country. Seventy-one percent of Democrats and ninety-three percent of Republicans agree. This is in Wisconsin. Discrimination and racism are bad, but they are not the cause of all disparities in American society. of Democrats agreed and 91% of Americans. Uh, Equal opportunity is a fundamental American principle. Equality of outcome is not. 66% of Wisconsin Democrats and 73% of Republicans agreed. Uh, America benefits from the presence of immigrants and no immigrant, even if illegal, should be mistreated. But border security is still important as an enforceable system that fairly decides who can enter the country. 74% of Democrats and 89% of Republicans agreed. Police misconduct and brutality of people of any race is wrong, and we need to reform police conduct and recruitment. More and better policemen is needed, policing is needed for, be- for our society and that cannot be provided by defunding the police. 69% of Democrats and 91% of Republicans. So you get the idea. Yeah. I mean, there is this, there is a, a wing of the Democrats that uh, is contrary to that, that believes in something like open borders, decriminalize illegal immigration, um, defund the police. Uh, patriotism, nationalism is a, are dirty words. Um, and so on, and but they are not representative, really, of the people who identify themselves as Democrats, uh, let alone of this huge growing mass of independent voters, uh, some of whom lean Democratic and some of whom lean Republican. Yeah, so I take your point. If that was the emphasis of the Democrats' message, they'd do better, but the emphasis of their message often isn't that. Now, I know there are many listeners of the show who say, what are you talking about? The Democrats say this all the time. It's all the right-wing distortion field that would have you not believe that. But, and, and I'll also acknowledge, you guys know how to do polling. When you do poll questions that have a little bit for everyone to pick from, you often get, yeah, I agree with that, if it has uh, a few different options there where they could say I could get behind that. But the very fact that it there are 30% of Democrats in all those questions who don't believe in those, I think, very obvious things reveal that 
that it is a part of the party. And the very fact that, you know, the University of California Board of Regents, as you write, defined as a microaggression, the uh, idea that the job should go to the most qualified, that's not within the Democratic Party, an unbelievable fringe belief. So let's put that out there. What could the Democratic Party be if those kind of messages were the ones that come to mind when people think about the Democratic Party? Well, I think our our argument would be uh, Democrats, by and large, and historically have done best when they're perceived, uh, widely perceived as being the party of the people, of the common man and woman, of the ordinary American, uh, who's primarily concerned with sort of universal uplift, making the lives of working and middle class people better, and actually has a, a relatively moderate stance on most cultural issues. That's really the secret sauce of the FDR New Deal. And if the Democrats were able to uh, move back in that direction and embrace those kinds of messages we were just talking about, which are common sense messages that most American voters, particularly working class voters, agree with, they would be able potentially to do better among these constituencies. Because one thing we've seen over time, and that's why we had President Trump in 2016, is the, the rapid movement of white working class voters away from the party. But very interestingly, recently, in the last 10 years, we've seen a beginning of a movement of non-white working class voters toward the Democratic Party, Hispanic working class voters in particular, and uh, black working class voters as well. So we're seeing that attrition among working class as a whole, which is actually changing the character of the party and creating a real weakness in their coalition. Now, that weakness could you know, potentially be repaired by tacking back to the center and embracing what most Americans, particularly working class voters, think is common sense. So they don't think that to be a Democrat, you have to endorse a whole vector of uh, kind of boutique positions uh, to some extent that come out of the campuses and now become popularized in the what we call the shadow party of the Democrats, which is not formally part of the Democratic Party, but exerts tremendous influence on what the party does and says. Um, they would not feel they have to sign on to all this stuff to be a Democrat, that the Democrats share their values uh, and are on their side. And that's that's a huge thing. I mean, the Democrats will say, well, we have lots of great economic programs mm-hmm. that people should get behind. You know, we're uh, we're the party that's in their interest. What's wrong with these people? But it all depends on how you define interests and it all depends on how you can talk to people about you know, there, there are other interests that are sort of non-cultural, non-value. You can't even get in the door with a lot of these voters if they feel fundamentally you don't share, you know, you, you look down on them and their way of life. You don't really share their values. They're not going to listen to you in any detail about your great programs. And again, as, as we know, Mike, most people don't vote on the basis of looking at a policy platform. Yeah. Is uh, So we could all conjure the slogans that have hurt Democrats in the past, and sometimes those slogans are unfairly applied to them by Republicans. But can you cite the counterexample where Democrats have been able to get in the door with a great message that the Republican misinformation machine tries to um, muddy, but that doesn't work just because the Democrats are so clear on what their message is. When does it work? How does it work? Well, I, I don't know if we can give you a slogan. We're not good at that. We would uh, we'd probably be have made ourselves rich by now as political consultants, but I can cite a few campaigns that people don't necessarily think about. 
One, oddly enough, is Hillary Clinton's uh, Senate campaign. It was in 2002, where she made a point of going down, going around small towns, mid-sized towns in upstate New York, talking to people, saying, I understand your problems. I want to do something about it. Tammy Baldwin in, in Wisconsin, she's a, a, a lesbian from Madison. You know, you would think, oh, this person can't. Again, pay attention. Go to Mark Warner really began this wave of uh, Democrats winning in uh, Virginia, again, by going to Roanoke, going to small towns, talking about uh, getting broadband for people. Uh, so I think a lot of it is where you pay your attention, where you make your emphasis. Uh, you know, in 2016, there was this famous story about uh, Hillary Clinton didn't even think she needed to go to Wisconsin uh, or Michigan for the uh, general election. Uh, so uh, you know, I, I think a lot of it is paying attention to people, uh, speaking to what they care about and what's important to them, and not rooting your campaigns in what, let's say, the Ford Foundation or the American Civil Liberty Union thinks is the most important issue. If I were to talk, I want to steel man this to some extent. If I were to talk to progressive strategists, and I'm thinking of, let's say, Cornell Belcher's doing the polling, and uh, right, let's say, um, I'm trying to think of some other uh, very good uh, Democratic strategists. State, let's say Stacey Abrams was doing some advising, right? I think they're very progressive, but they're also savvy. They would take your statements that most Democrats agree with, and they would say, but we are saying that. And to some extent, they are, sure. But what is it that they're also saying that other people are hearing? So is it just the fact that, you know, when certain people see the message coming out of a black face or maybe a lesbian face or maybe a, a woman's face, it becomes that much harder of a message than when Sherrod Brown is saying it? Well, uh, you know, again, I think if you uh, actually listen to people, uh, they don't say uh, they, they don't say what we were describing in our uh, poll of, of what the normal average voter thinks. Again, if you go back to the 2016 campaign, I was listening to the debates there, and Hillary Clinton was saying, "Well, we shouldn't uh, deport an illegal immigrant unless they commit a violent felony." So mm -hmm. I thought of some kids who have a who start come across the border and start a a, ste a, a ring stealing cars. This is not an imaginary example, yeah. right? Not pickpockets. Don't pickpockets should stay. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's <laughs> and people hear that and they say, "Well, you know, what is this all about?" And again, a lack of attention in that case. We're talking about immigration to to border security. Mm -hmm. In the two thousand nine. A 19 primary, you had these things where people were raising their hand, they wanted to uh, decriminalize Im immigration and so on. So yeah, they actually do say that stuff. And uh, then the party itself gets tagged with it. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Biden's virtue in 2020 was he didn't and he backed or he started to, but then he backed off because Nancy Pelosi warned him that he was marginalizing. Uh, the Democrats. And so he was a kind of neutral shield and people could concentrate on all of Trump's uh, various ills and not on, on the Democrat. It wasn't a choice this time between who do you like least. 
Is the problem that Democrats, by and large, uh, well, we've identified that one problem is that they're tagged with uh, their progressive wing, um, mm-hmm. that, that, that the brand is associated with those ideas. So is the problem how the progressive wing talks or how the progressive wing thinks or that the progressive wing is so dominant within the party itself? Well, I think it's uh, sort of all of the above. <laughs> I mean, they boot, they do talk in a particular kind of language, which they insist on using uh, in their political discourse. And when nonprofits talk about the issues they're concerned about, like Navarro might talk about, you know, pregnant people, uh, you know, Latino groups might talk about Latinx. Uh, there's a whole variety of ways in which uh, this sort of the progressive blob, the shadow party does have a particular language for them, you know, putting their pronouns in their signatures. I mean, this is stuff that is actually not the way normal people talk about the world, but it is the way normal progressive activist people talk about the world. Uh, and then the policies they, they tend to support, um, like we were talking about the issue of border security. As John points out, most people are very concerned about border security and the Biden administration, when it came into office, basically while it didn't specifically say everybody should come and you're probably going to get in, essentially the way they conducted their policies along those lines was very much uh, encouraging to people. And as a result, we had uh, the tsunami of people pouring across the border. We're still seeing it today. I mean, basically, the only way you have border security is to have border security. If you, you know, basically say we're going to be more humane and nice uh, and we're going to get rid of some of the Trump era restrictions, well, the way that's perceived among the millions of people who do want to come here, hey, now's a great time to do it. Mm-hmm. If you don't fix the asylum system, people will take advantage of it. So it does come out in policy. And if you, you look at the fund, the police, it's just a fact, I think, that even though very few Democratic politicians want to come out right now and say to fund the police, and famously, Biden said, fund the police, fund the police, fund the police, uh, the way the Democrats have approached crime in a lot of the areas they um they control is actually quite lax on the issue. It's not particularly tough on crime. It's trying to implement stuff like bail reform. It's trying to let, you know, basically, they're not oriented toward, let's get violent criminals off the streets. Right. So uh, let's get into this shift. The Democrats are very much supported by college-educated people, college-educated white people, college-educated people in general. And the charts in your book, if people don't remember this from their own lifetime, you know, Obama, what a success. Obama in his first run for president, he actually won the college vote by one point, right? Now the Democrats, white college vote, now the Democrats have the college vote so sewn up. This was a conscious choice. They wanted to win the college vote. They appealed to the college voter and by gum, they did it. Here's the problem. Two thirds of people are not college graduates. How can a party make such a mistake? Well, that's the 64 gazillion dollar question. (laughs) I mean, uh, there's there's so much data on this now. It really is rather extraordinary. Um, And you see this almost perfect inversion of democratic support between working class and college educated people. In 2022, the Democrats carried college educated voters by 10 points and lost working class voters by 10 points. I mean, that's pretty bizarre for a party that historically has been the party of the working class. And you see that in the trend data as well. I mean, where have the Democrats gained support over time uh, since roughly 2012? It's basically there's one demographic, white college educated voters. They've lost ground everywhere else, including among non-white voters, 
including, as I said, among non-white working class voters. So, you know, I guess the benign interpretation of this would be Democrats are simply going where the votes are, where they feel comfortable. But there's a problem with that. When you increasingly rely on the votes of these well-educated voters, it does mean you, you tend to take on board their priorities, their culture, their viewpoint, and, you know, sort of it's a, a cycle. You, it's a feedback loop. You, you become ever more tied to these voters, ever more likely to use their rhetoric and, and sort of upgrade their priorities and ever less likely to appeal to working class voters. There's a lot of studies that suggest that for the kinds of voters that vote Democratic who are educated, and remember, not everybody's educated votes for Democrats, um, they vote increasingly on the basis of, even though they may have fairly liberal views on some economic issues, what they really vote on are these social and cultural issues, which again creates an incentive for Democrats to double down on this stuff. And in doubling down, they make themselves even more mm. unattractive to working class voters and perhaps moves them away from the kind of uh, economic uh, concerns that, that most of these voters hold dear and certainly affects their view. This is great. I'm enjoying this conversation. Don't you want more? Well, Pasca Plus subscribers will be hearing more from John and Rui. In fact, towards the end, I ask a question that gets this response. <laughs> well, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, that would imply that we're... Uh, we're, we're, we're sort of uh, sort of conducting our analyses in such a way as to secure our, uh, our, our exalted purchase as pundits within the American discourse. To avail yourself of this or to subscribe without ads, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. And now the spiel, and I don't usually give a warning, but this one could get rough. So when word spread of the terrorist attacks against Israel of October 7th, the world reeled. Stories of villages stormed, families slaughtered, babies burned and beheaded, civilians abducted, old people held hostage, well over a thousand murdered. But amidst that litany I just recited, there was one inhumane act that could not be confirmed, it was this one, as mentioned by President Biden from the White House podium. I never really thought that I would see and have confirmed pictures of terrorists beheading children. Those actions were not confirmed, and soon the White House conceded as much. According to the Washington Post, quote, a White House spokesperson later clarified that U.S. officials and the president have not seen pictures or confirmed such reports independently. So the White House and the West in general corrected this incorrect assertion that children were beheaded. And they should have corrected it in the absence of evidence. But soon that correction became something broader. Fact check. Did Hamas behead babies? Al Jazeera issued this fact check. But the damage had been done. Biden's initial claims were already featured on the front pages of many news outlets and continued to be cited in some quarters as justification for revenge attacks and the collective punishment of civilians in Gaza. There are a couple of counterclaims to this assertion I'd like to get into. I'll call them the outraged rebuttal and the gentle rebuttal. Outraged would be phrased, okay, babies weren't beheaded. They were burned, slaughtered, killed. The exact manner of death that befell these babies and 1,400 other Israelis altogether is immaterial to the immorality of the acts of terrorism and the urgency to neutralize Hamas. The gentle correction went something like, you're right, 
It is bad to be inaccurate. We want more accuracy, but there is something called the fog of war. And knowing that there is a fog of war, what you can do is to correct inaccuracies as soon as possible. This one was corrected, but it also changes nothing about the underlying arguments for Israel's defense. That's the gentle argument. But soon the lack of beheaded babies became something more than a rumor that shouldn't have been reported, a misstated fact. It became something almost totemic to the critics of Israel. On the show, rising co-host Brianna Joy Gray, former press secretary to Bernie Sanders, uh, his 2020 presidential run, former politics editor for The Intercept, interpreted the misinformation about beheaded babies as a purposeful propaganda technique. If you have a tragic mass of death on both sides, including multitudes more Palestinians who have been killed over the last, last 10, 15 years than Israelis who have been killed. And children, Palestinian children, a much bigger, horrible, tragic, disgusting pile of Palestinian bodies, then you have to find a way to distinguish why those kind of raw numbers and why all of the children and the tragedy shouldn't be treated equally. And we see words like barbaric, Barbarism. Because it was barbaric. Flown around, flung around. But the barbarism, the the inhumanity of bombing children in Palestine is not describing those same words. What you need to do is find language that makes it feel like there's something different to the character of it when a Israeli child is killed versus when a Palestinian child is killed. It is, Gray added, an embellishment, and she said she believed it's rooted in a desire to strip humanity from the people of Palestine. Or, and I ask, perhaps not someone with Gray's priors, but let's try to imagine a reasonable observer, consider this. Is it the case, is more likely the case, that after the slaughter of 1,400 people with so many horrifying details that can even be fully shared on network television or family newspapers, is it the case that someone in charge of rhetoric said, we need to go further. We need to concoct one more detail because the actual horrifying carnage is just not shocking enough to the conscience of any decent person. Or is it more likely that someone thought they saw or did see a slaughtered baby and incorrectly thought that baby was beheaded and said that to a reporter and then it got out? Or maybe as just People were trying to absorb the scene of carnage that they were witnessing, the bloodletting. Maybe they heard wrong or even thought that they saw amidst the blood an actual beheaded baby. So ask yourself, rhetorical tactic or just regular humans trying to process something which the human body was not meant to process? Now, the reasonable person I posited is certainly not Roger Waters, formerly of Pink Floyd, who the current State Department says has, quote, a long track record of using anti-Semitic tropes. He was interviewed by leftist journalist Glenn Greenwald. The thing was was thrown out of all proportion by the Israelis making up stories about beheading babies. They even got the president of the United States, dotard that he is, to claim that he had seen photographs of the beheaded babies. Of the beheaded babies. Yeah. The thing was blown out of proportion. What would be the proper proportion of 1,400 dead 
children among them. The beheaded babies really gave away the game, according to Waters. That someone would say beheaded babies tells you what you need to know. And what do you need to know? Well, no less than it was all a globally tentacled worldwide conspiracy, which Waters introduces by holding out the possibility that the Hamas attacks weren't even actually perpetrated by Hamas against Israelis. What we do know is whether it was a false flag operation or not, or whatever, or whatever happened, and whatever story we're going to get to, and we, we don't know if we will ever get much of a real story. It's, very, it's always hard to tell what actually happened. They're calling it their 9-11. What the hell happened on the American 9-11? Nobody knows. The, oh, clearly, the official narrative has huge holes in it. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Anyway, let's not go into the 9-11. So like I said, Waters is not that reasonable person. But is it Al Jazeera? Al Jazeera still retains a good deal of credibility in the West. But think about that clip I played. They spent some of their credibility in the form of a fact check asserting that the damage was done of the misreporting of beheaded babies. And that damage is what allowed the, quote, collective punishment to go on. Whereas I ask, but for the beheaded babies claim, would one less Israeli bomb be dropped? Would one fewer U.S. officials support Israel? Would one more member of the IDF have laid down their arms in refusal to, quote, collectively punish? I believe that the beheaded babies claim was a logical, understandable mistake in response to a horrible, actual thing that happened. I believe that the beheaded babies claim doesn't give Israel any more of an impetus to act or give the U.S. a smidgen of further cover or rationale to support Israel. I think what it does do, I think it's working for one side or one faction in this argument. I think it gives opponents of Israel's current assault on Gaza something to point to that they were actually factually right about, that something initially supporters of Israel were wrong about, and they use that as a giant justification for a raft of conclusions that do not follow or a spate of explanations that do not hold. Remember I spoke about the ideal rational actor? This next person comes closer, Zenyep Tefeki, an academic and columnist for the New York Times. She recently wrote a column titled, Past Lies About War in the Middle East Are Getting in the Way of the Truth Today. Quote, since Hamas did murder children and take others hostage, should it get credit if it didn't also behead them? It's an appalling thought. Some of this skepticism is surely the result of anti-Semitism, but that's not all that's going on. One key reason for some of the incidents of doubt is the suspicion that horrendous but false or exaggerated claims are being used as a rationale for war. And there are many such historical examples, most notably the Iraq War. Tefeki then goes through a litany of lies offered in the service of U.S. involvement in unpopular wars. She does not, however, describe the many lies or just falsehoods or misimpressions that always permeate every side of every war. To give you one example of a popular war, in October of 1941, FDR made a speech where he said, quote, I have in my possession a secret map made by Hitler's government. It is a map of South America and part of Central America. As Hitler proposes to reorganize it, FDR went on to say that he had uncovered Hitler's plan to eradicate world religions. Neither 
was real. There was no map. There was no plan. The map was a invention of the British Secret Service trying to get the U.S. into war. This is very different from a rumor allowed to spread for less than a day when the White House corrected it. But what does it tell us? It tells us that there are always mistakes attending to acts of war and brutality, and the presence of a mistake need not mean more than the fact that mistakes are always made when it comes to war and brutality. They could be made on the side of the righteous or the wronged. The power of the beheaded babies report has been wildly, wantonly, almost willfully overstated. It does not reveal secret motivations. It did not allow for any actions that wouldn't have otherwise occurred. And there's one more wrinkle, and this next part is what justifies that warning I gave at the top. So the government of Israel has been screening footage, first in their country, now abroad in U.S. embassies, and uh, reportedly Gal Gadot is even going to offer a screening in Hollywood. But what this footage is, is video that was captured from gleeful Hamas terrorists killing Israelis on October 7th. Here is the Politico description of some of the scenes that their reporters witnessed. Two tween boys in their underwear run into a shed with their father, only to see him die after a terrorist throws a grenade in behind them. The father flops backward, having protected the boys with his body. Why am I alive? One brother screams before telling the killer in English that he wanted his mother. Elsewhere, there's a man on the ground, gravely wounded, but still very much alive. Militants slowly and inexpertly behead him with an old garden hoe while chanting praises to God. Now, this description was from Canada's National Post. Same presentation, though. The literal streams of blood, the hacked off arms and legs, the infant missing parts of its skull, brain leaking out, Mickey Mouse pajamas on a young corpse, skull fragments on floors, victims shot point blank, so much blood. And once more, back to Politico. Eventually, the video ended abruptly in a flood of images of dead babies and children. Another 10 children under the age of five are still missing and presumed kidnapped, according to Israeli officials. As the light came on, the people in the room sat dumbly for a long beat. It wasn't clear what to do. I say we, as non-combatants, what we can do is grieve for the innocents, all of the innocents. We could try to protect them. We could have a little humanity and decency if you are such a person to be in a position to assess why one specific detail may have been wrong or indeed may not have been. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pasca, CLFAO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's Advertise Cast. If you want to advertise on The Gist, go to advertisecast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>